0: Welcome to the inaugural season of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, the podcast. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kakis-Wolf.
1: So I was uh, driving into the office today and I was staring at my phone uh, on Twitter. Wait, is that legal?
0: I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's legal. Although, uh, were you using a hands-free device? I was right? using a hands-free
1: device and a hands-free Twitter. Do you know that there's a thing? It's a thing. If it's not a thing, maybe somebody can figure out how to build it. <laughs> but so as I, I was driving in and I was looking at Twitter and I saw a post about another post that was debunking this other post that was attached to it. And I like, I'm in the world of technology and in some regards I have a relationship into the world of news, but oh my gosh, I was like so depressed and confused about what was going on and it reminded me of Uh, panel that I sat on a couple of months ago in San Francisco. It was actually after a play that took place called Clickshare that was at uh, ACT's The Strand. And this panel afterwards, I was on it, but I had two other people that were on it as well that were not related to the play. One was the author, but the other two were one named Ed Wasserman, who is the dean of the School of Journalism, Graduate School of Journalism at Berkeley, and, and then the guest that we have on the podcast today, Arthi Shoshani. Arthi, to me, in that discussion was more human and more like right on to the pulse of what was going on in the world of disinformation than I think I'd seen or felt from anybody that I had read or seen over the course of the last year. I kind of fell in love with the way that Artie presented the story in a way that completely opened my eyes to where even when I'm driving into the office and I'm depressed because I'm reading something, I just think about, hey, this is the way that Arthi describes the potential for hope in the future.
0: Yeah, you mentioned journalism, fake news, and all of that. And look, I think when people think about fake news, they often think about it in the context of politics, when in reality, it's applicable to all industries. And I have a love-hate relationship with that term, given where it originated. But uh, the reality is we tend to pump up, even in the technology industry, we pump up companies, we pump up people. And beneath the surface, you know, there's no way to live up to that hype and there's no real fact checking or diligence done on many of these stories.
1: It's true. I mean, you're like the biggest fan of Guy Ferrari out of anybody that I've ever met. And you probably write more Guy Ferrari positive reviews on Yelp than anybody.
0: There we go. Uh, Fake news at its finest. Arthi is, uh, as we've alluded to, an awesome journalist. She's currently a tech reporter at NPR. She's based in the Silicon Valley. She actually lives in Oakland. And I say that without judgment. She enjoys Oakland and she loves it. it it And I love Oakland. And, you know, though, Arthi didn't get into journalism through a conventional path. She was a community organizer in New York where she helped prisoners and their families, she prevented them from being deported from the US. And so, this is a second career for her, but you know, given her her background and her credentials, she's a graduate of the the Kennedy School at Harvard, which is, of course, one of the top public policy schools in the country. So you know, she's a utility player; she can do a lot of things. You graduated from there, also. Uh, I am not. Uh, I'm not from the Big H, right? And so I, I did not go to school in Cambridge or Boston, right? I can't introduce myself that way at a, at cocktail parties. But
1: you did go to a liberal arts school, and we all know that liberal arts schools are what really. Yeah, graduate people. Uh, They
0: do, but for our podcast, it'll be Arthi ruling the podcast. And so without further ado, let's get into our interview with Arthi.
1: Thank you for joining us today on This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley podcast.
2: Thanks for having me here.
1: We really appreciate being here. Uh, We have talked about your biography kind of who you are and how people should know you uh, prior to us sitting down together. But we really want to hear about where you grew up and what you loved about where you grew
2: up. You want to start with childhood. I'm going to
1: start with like <laughs> when you were a kid and let's talk about the psychoses that your parents introduced to you as a child. I'm kidding. Just oh, like, What well, did you love about where you grew
2: up? I grew up undocumented actually for a few years before we got papers uh, back in New York City. Yeah, I grew up in Flushing, Queens specifically. Flushing at the time in the 1980s. One one three five five was the most diverse zip code in the country.
1: My family's from Astoria.
2: Oh, very Astoria! Very yeah, good. That's exactly. Right, yeah, can say it in a lot of ways. Yeah, and so I grew up. I would say, on the one hand, um, I met people from all over the world. My neighbors were from Afghanistan, from Ethiopia, from Puerto Rico, from Russia, like people were from everywhere. So I, I grew up not realizing that there were borders in certain ways, uh-huh. but at the same time also not having papers. So there's kind of, a, you know, a few things going on there. We came here when I was a baby. I was originally born in Morocco. Uh-huh. And, you know, Flushing was just such a vibrant place. My mom is, a, I call her a god junkie. And what I mean by that is she just loves going to religious things. Like it doesn't matter what religion. Yeah. And so I was, you know, I was her little one and she would just take me to like the Korean Zen feminist temple. Or she would take me to the unification church run by the man who said that he was Christ resurrected. Or she would take me, uh, you know, we're Hindu originally. She would take me to go pray over there to, to the Lord Ganesh. I mean, like, there are just... Yeah. Uh, basically, it was a very bizarre upbringing.
1: You get to taste test everything.
2: Taste test everything and probably just genuinely feel comfortable with all kinds of people. Yeah. I'm at home in diversity, I'm not at home in homogeneity.
0: How did you end up in San Francisco?
2: Oh boy. (laughs) Well, in 2012, my company and PR sent me here and I was supposed to be here for three months. And the reason I chose San Francisco is I could have actually gone to anywhere in the country. But one of my buddies was like, Arthi, you've only ever lived in New York City get the hell out. Just like, go try something different. Like you can always come back. It's always here for you. Just go.
1: Do you take the advice of your friends all the time? Especially gigantic life-changing moments?
2: Hardly ever. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I mean, even with small things, like, you know, like, um, but he's someone I trusted who really, I think got that I was seeking a kind of growth. He had the insight of, as you're changing your career, go to a place where you can really explore new ground, where you don't have a set identity, where it's not like people know you as Arthi who did this. Yeah, Really great advice. And so I came here in 2012. It was supposed to be for three months. And then I was supposed to go back to Washington, D.C. and keep working at my company's headquarters. But I got here and I just fell in love with the place. And not uniformly. I have so much criticism about this place. Too. I mean, I'm a New Yorker, so I carry criticism with me everywhere. But I just felt like, wow. What a bizarre place with such bizarre people. Another thing was, I just love the outdoors. Like, I had no idea I was going to love it because, you know, my version of wildlife growing up was cockroaches. Like, my building was just roach infested. So, like, those were the animals I saw growing up. But then to, like, come out to the Bay Area and see, like, gorgeous terrain yeah. and rolling hills. Like, I, I just fell in love with the land. That's um,
1: awesome. Yeah. I grew up on the West Coast and mm. in a commune outside of Eugene, Oregon.
2: Oh, wow. And I
1: used to go out in the summers and spend my time in Astoria with oh. my family, my mother's family. My mother was the uh, kind of anti of your mother. My mother was skeptical of every single religion. And so she would introduce me to a religion, mm-hmm. kind of taste test all of them, but with a eyes towards skepticism first. Like, don't go there and just appreciate it, but go there and be skeptical of all these things. Interesting. But my, my <laughs> appreciation of going to New York in the summers was this is the outdoors. Like, this is amazing. That's so right? funny. And your I decline. saw my first lightning yeah. bug and caught my first lightning bug as a kid. And
2: may I ask what commune?
1: So uh, non-denominational commune. So we were a group of futurists, uh, which was interesting at the time. So some of my earliest memories are sitting in a geodesic dome at desks so talking, about, talking about there's going to be a time where mainframes are small enough to be able to be at everybody's houses and you're going to be able to connect to people and create these distributed networks. And mm. the other side were... Uh, a bunch of people who were kind of anti-pesticide um, activists. So they were the kind of rebel rousers of the group of people that we lived with, and and they made all of their money um, cutting acid. Mm-hmm. So it was this kind of fascinating group of people who cared about technology in the future, and another one which was very much, I'm in touch with how my body and the environment actually can play a role in your lives. Mm-hmm. As a taste tester coming from New York to the West Coast, and in San Francisco in particular, Did that show up for you again? I mean, obviously, you're a journalist, and so Mm -hmm. it's part of what you have to do. But is the Bay Area better or different than what you expected from a taste tester's perspective? Oh, I
2: mean, I think the Bay Area was my plunge into the exotic. Yeah. I mean, like, I had never been surrounded by so many geeks before. Like, in my first year here, I hope I'm not exaggerating, I think the plurality of my friends were physicists. And I'd never met a scientist before. Yeah. And I actually figured out, why am I meeting so many physicists? And I actually, so I've now, like, I have, like, genres of nerd. And I feel like I've categorized people sort of well. And I think that often, like, computer scientists here can be brilliant, But sometimes not quite philosophical, Uh whereas physicists, I think, really love to puzzle over the whys of life. Yeah. And so they speak a language that overlaps enough with the way that I think about the world. Mm. So that might be be why the universe of like quants, like people who are just so good at math, like I was really taken to a certain kind of person here just to talk to and be friends with. And then I would say that like just in terms of understanding the lingo and talking to people like... I didn't really get how an IPO worked before. I wasn't covering business before. I, I certainly didn't get the software economy. So, like, the fact that my job was to just jump in and learn by doing I mean, like, it, I've gone to very nice schools, but it was like the best education I ever had. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Let's talk about journalism and tech for a minute here. Yeah. <laughs> so, here in particular, you have the people that you're covering who oftentimes are eccentric millionaires and billionaires. And you have journalists that, you know, make a lot less, but are overeducated oftentimes. Mm-hmm. And does that create any tension or animosity? How does the journalism dynamic work in tech right now?
2: I think that here, as opposed to other places, you do have a huge disparity in the class of reporter versus source, right? I've observed this, you know, when I go to developer conferences or when I interview certain people. Not all. Some quote unquote journalists or bloggers, I think are just looking for a way to get hired by the companies that they're writing about. Listen, it's not always a bad idea. I think that there's space for that. I think it's a problem because it sets a tone here where a lot of tech leaders aren't used to accountability reporting. I'll talk to people who are very seasoned in interviews They'll say something and then they'll be like, oh, that was off the record. And I'm like, no, sweetheart, it doesn't work that way. You've just talked to me. My mic is on. I'm recording. You tell me things. You don't retroactively tell me something's off the record. You tell me you want to tell me something off the record. And we may or may not agree to that. But I mean, you're a pro. Come on. But the fact that that kind of thing actually happens relatively often makes me feel like, wow, there's a lot of slipperiness here around how people What's what's um, relatively
1: often? Is that like, is this endemic? Like, is
2: it? I would say that it's happened several times. Yeah. Now I interview people every day, so maybe several times isn't that often. Mm-hmm. But I would say the other thing is that there is a very kind of like white glove approach between many of the reporters in the companies. Not at all. I mean, you definitely do see some great accountability journalism. You know, like there are people here that I deeply respect and I'm like, hell yeah, we need to do more and more of that. I just know that I'm not going to name names here, but like, let's just say, uh, One of the largest five companies, that's narrow
1: enough,
2: (laughs) I did a, a story that was absolutely accountability reporting. And, you know, I was meticulous in making sure that everything is correct. And there was no request for a correction, but there was this deep pushback of, we don't appreciate you doing that as though like accountability reporting is gotcha journalism. Right. And it's like, no, they're not actually not like gotcha is I tricked you into something. Accountability is we're walking through this. So I'm going to ask hard questions and I'm going to run with the answers. Yeah. So
0: I think it's a, uh, uh-huh. it's a dangerous time in journalism here in particular. There is a, I agree with you. I mm-hmm. think that a lot of journalists have encountered take the white glove approach and eventually angle for either an early job at a hot startup or a venture capital firm. And there's few people that have remained independent, Kara Swisher being one of them Mm -hmm. and as a committed journalist, but it's a dying breed.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I haven't been here as long as you have. So I'm not sure if it's a dying breed or if it's just small, but even possibly growing, because this is also a very exciting place to be. So I wouldn't be surprised if there are more people like me who see our future in speaking to the public and speaking to a mass public and helping to shape the way that the country or the world understands things and who may be drawn to being here because like you've got such a concentration of power why wouldn't you want to be here and explore it so I don't know that it's dying I do agree it's small
0: Let's talk about the Bay Area for a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you're an Oakland resident. I am. Uh, yeah,
2: Oakland. Uh,
0: I want to hear your reaction <laughs> to the uh, to the Uber headquarters news uh, and how that's going to affect the city of Oakland. Let's mm-hmm. bookmark that thought for a second.
2: And I'm sorry. So they actually announced that they're not going to expand there.
0: That they're not moving into exactly. the uh, Oakland headquarters. Correct. Yeah. 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 And uh, uh-huh. I, I wonder how what what kind of effect that that's going to have on like the whole the property
2: values. And yeah. That, yeah. But first. What are you
0: optimistic or pessimistic about? Would you say your general tone is optimistic or pessimistic on the Bay Area at the moment?
2: So both. Um, I can tell you what I'm optimistic about. I can tell you what I'm pessimistic about. So what would you rather hear first? Pessimistic. There we go. That's an honest answer. (laughs) Um, It's very visceral. I'm pessimistic because there's no shortage of homeless encampments, and we walk by them. There are tent cities propped up by the highway entrances and under the overpasses. And there's a lot of numbness to it. So walking through San Francisco, frankly, can remind me of walking through parts of Mumbai, and that's not actually a compliment, talking about the slums. And so I think that over just the last five years, I've seen more, not less of that. Uh, I can't claim to be a great citizen in any way. Like, I keep having it on my to-do list of, hey, Arthi, go take a weekend and just talk to people who are homeless. To open your eyes to what might be relevant there that you can report that's fresh and that keeps us awake. Um, so, like, that is just a sort of dramatic example of the wealth gap and how it's growing. I mean, it's not just people who are living in tents, but it's people who are living in their cars, right? It's like there's a lot of that.
1: Do you see that and, in other places in the U.S.? Or is this just the Bay Area for you? This is the thing that's By way of, con-
2: I mean. this is, a, San Francisco's, about 800,000 people? Yeah. The concentration of homelessness is crazy. Yeah. I mean, sure, there is in New York. But it's not like here. Right. It's just not like here. So that's a huge difference, yeah. I would say. Then I'd say another thing is that I think this place has really strongly inscribed gender norms and sexism in a way I did not expect. Mm-hmm. And I think that part of why that is is because, on average, men make so much more than women. Yeah. And in social lives, there's, this, there's a bit of this sort of assumption of, hey, I'm the one... With the 200, 300k salary and shares, and women are going to want me for my money. I think that that's a lot of men's assumption here. Mm-hmm. But in the past, earlier on moving here, I remember going out with people like on dates, you know, just having a date. And I talked to some guy who's like very excited about the startup he's building, and seemed to presume that he was going to be a big deal and I should be impressed by his sort of material status.
1: Yeah.
2: And you know, not to be um, ungenerous, but my thought is nine out of ten startups fail, and I assume I'll be more successful than you. Yeah. But that's not actually in the culture. I think that's more out of the norm. Yeah. And so I've certainly made here a lot of great female friends who are amazing entrepreneurs and women who are just killing it in their line of work. But we're operating in a context where it's like there is this underlying presumption that men are in charge and men call the shots. And if you want to win, you gotta be diplomatic around it.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. I think it's a like it's a really specific issue that I see in the Bay Area in particular because I find companies trying to mirror what they think other companies look like and Mm -hmm. what their success looks like and so the patterns that they try and follow expose the exact same kind of biases that you're talking about it's all very real Mm -hmm. but the kind of constant echo chamber and the strength of the echo chamber into all corporate structures or most or many corporate structures Mm -hmm. i think really reinforces pretty much every challenge in inclusivity every challenge with diversity that Mm -hmm. we talk about it feels very heightened here more so than most places in the world that i get the opportunity to travel to yeah
0: The assumption of, uh, sorry to interrupt Please. you, the assumption of success, I thought, was one of the better, you know, points you made throughout that that's not often highlighted. This notion that because you started a company and raised a million dollar seed round, that somehow that implies that you're going to be a big deal. I can't even tell you how many of these companies that raise a million plus dollars, as you pointed out, they fail. Yeah, yeah. At a shocking regularity.
2: We see it all the time. (laughs) But it's, you know, there's still a myth that lives in the culture, I think, despite the facts. You know, culture isn't fact-checked, I guess.
1: Uh, there's a, uh, at least Sunil and I talk about this. We think there's like a fetish of the Silicon Valley and the things that show up in the Silicon Valley that sometimes are kind of cool, mm-hmm. show up in other areas and maybe they don't land in the exact way that you want. So when you think about optimism and the Bay Area in particular, is there something that's kind of ridiculous that you think is kind of fun that you hope will show up elsewhere in the world that's very unique here? I'll give you an example, maybe an example. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a ridiculous example. And I talk about this uh, in the podcast every once in a while because I think it's just a funny example. I was working deep down in the Valley and I ended up staying really late I just decided to stay at a hotel in the evening and I stayed at this hotel and I didn't have a toothbrush or anything, and, and a robot butler brought the toothbrush and toothpaste. Oh, me. Sure. And yeah. I thought that was like completely ridiculous. And sometimes I think about that and I'm like, oh, that is horrible, and I can't believe that's happening. I hope it never shows up in other places. And other times I'm like, well, actually, that's super clever. And oh, I maybe get you. Fun.
2: Yeah. I mean, I just know, like, given the way I drive, I hope to God self-driving cars take over the roads. <laughs> I mean, like, I just think that that'll be a good thing for all of us. Yeah. Um, and you know, like Listen, I'm very much part of the reporting around fears around job destruction. Yeah. That said, I think I do share the faith that a lot of technologists have that some things are destroyed, new things are created, and you have to trust that process is actually a fertile one. Yeah. Um, But yeah, no, I think that self-driving cars, but like real ones, not like, not like, you know, level two that's not really self-driving, but, but marketed as though they are. Yeah. You know who I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, but like real self-driving cars where I can really just like stop pretending that I'm yeah. paying full attention to the road. That kind of thing. I think it'll be really great for us.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I can say our eight-year-old absolutely loves the idea of it. I have three three children and our eight-year-old constantly says, hey, dad, I think when I get older, I'm not ever going to need a car because I'm just going to have a car pick me up. And then I may take a nap when I have to go to school or do whatever. Yeah. And he's like, wouldn't that be nice if you could just get in the car and go to sleep and then jump in the office? I hope my kids never
0: drive.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, your wish may be granted, right? Given the pace. (laughs) I can actually share one other one. So I'm a little bit obsessed with the way that digital tools powered by the cloud and machine learning make us closer, like make the world smaller. For example, these translation tools. Like I went to China for the first time a few months ago. And I was getting a little claustrophobic just going with my elite group of journalists to elite meetings with elite people. And I was like, I want to wander around and just, like, get to know the locals. And, like, I have no language skills at all. But then I realized that, like, I could use Google Translate's simultaneous voice translation function to talk to people. So I literally, like, got lost for half a day and I ended up having an hour and a half long conversation with a pedicurist who did my nails at some small shop. She didn't speak a lick of English. I speak nothing in Mandarin or Cantonese. Yeah. And like, I got to know like what her rent is and what she makes. And she told me like her advice about marriage and love. And she talked to me about her son and like, it got, it got local. And I was like, this is powered by technology. It was by no means perfect. I mean, like, I had to work at it and it was kind of buggy, but I'm like, wow, there, there's the groundwork of something interesting here. Yeah. And I can see for my parents, like my parents together spoke seven languages. And that really shaped how they could connect to people as they were forced to travel the world, first as refugees and then as migrants, uh, immigrants. But I feel like, wow, so now like Google and Baidu are going to help me do that? That's it's just interesting.
0: Yeah. You know? That's Shifting awesome. gears, mm-hmm. something about... San Francisco that was just a commonly accepted myth that maybe even perhaps you had when you moved over here that is complete bullshit?
2: Complete BS? That the Bay Area is environmentalist. Ah,
0: interesting one. Complete Uh, BS. Tell us about that.
2: Well, we have horrible mass transit. Our solution to mass transit is now putting people in individual cars being driven around by other people who are driving around waiting for rides to, you know, like the, the amount of time you spend in an Uber or Lyft as a driver just waiting for a pickup, you're emitting fumes the entire time. Um, But no, the mass transit here is awful. And I know that it always surprises my friends who are visiting from major cities, you know, whether we're talking about New York or DC, or we're talking about Mumbai or Mexico City. My friends who come here are like, I don't get it. I thought that Bay Area super environmentalist, but like, You need a car to get everywhere. So I would say that that's like a huge myth about this place.
1: But we have like six different things to recycle stuff in.
2: Well, sure. Okay, listen, on the upside, we do have fast food restaurants here that actually have a compost bin. Yeah. That's great. But we're also emitting tons of carbon in the way that we travel. And I'm not convinced that, that, you know, listen, our transportation infrastructure is a good long-term reflection of our values. Yeah. So... That's very fair. I rest my case. It's
1: incredibly fair. (laughs) Speaking of values, As uh, we end off today's discussion, this podcast, could you give some insights into who you really enjoy following on Twitter? Maybe top two Twitter follows. Oh,
2: yeah, I can. Um, You know, actually, let me just open this up for a second because I'm just blanking for a moment.
1: As you're looking on that, I'll I'll share another appreciation of translation. Please. Uh, My daughter, who I will not say her name and you have to guess which of the two of my daughters it would be, has recently fallen in love with a thing called hobby horse. She rides horses um, in real life and hobby horsing is a thing where you, maybe if you watch on YouTube or on Facebook, like several months ago, you saw a bunch of Finnish girls like running around in horse rings with like a stuffed horse head and a stick and like jumping over horses. Mm -hmm. And so this is a thing and she's really gotten excited about it. And now she's chatting with people on Instagram in Finland and learning through translation tools, how to type in Finnish. And it's just happened over oh, the course wow. of the last couple of months. Yeah. But it's, it is just staggering, the, the speed and access to new languages and what that does for you as an individual that yeah. we're starting to see but now. I do
2: wonder where the chips are going to fall. So is it that like these translation tools are actually going to open up our appetite um, to learn languages and actually learn them? Yeah. Or is it going to be like what Google has done to so much of knowledge, which is like we now no longer know anything, but we can Google it. You yeah. know, it's so like I, I don't actually know where I think the chips are going to fall there. We'll just so
1: bring into the front of our glasses or contacts or irises whatever Google says in their canonical data that they store. Those our kids people. are going to know yeah. how to do yeah. math. Yeah. Yeah.
2: No one's going to know how to do math. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so two people I'm currently loving on Twitter. Uh, one is Soledad O'Brien, yeah. who I think is just such a fantastic journalist and a trusted voice. And she does this great combination of like, you know, tweeting out inspirational things that will keep you going and calling out BS and politics. And like, I look at her and, you know, where I'm at with my public voices, I'm a reporter and I feel cautious relatively. I mean, maybe for Silicon Valley standards, I'm very outspoken, but I think yeah. for like New York and D.C. standards, I'm still fairly cautious about calling things out or sharing my opinions as opposed to my reporting. Mm. Uh, but that I think, say first name basis, yeah. I think she does that, particularly, for example, throughout the weekend in Charlottesville during the white supremacist rally over there. Watching her on Twitter actually made me feel like it was a bit of soul food for me in a way that I'm not used to feeling about Twitter because I often feel Twitter is like a sort of vast, horrible wasteland of anger. (laughs) But I love seeing her there. And then another person... I really love is Ninja Economics. Mm-hmm. She's not like a super famous person. She's just so smart and nerdy. Like, like, I'm a total nerd girl. I freaking love that girl. Woman, woman. But she loves economics, and she's always tweeting out interesting graphics and facts. Like, it could be about development. It could be about the criminal justice system. She's just like hardcore nerdy. I retweet her not in often. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah,
0: Arthur, it was great having you. We, uh, we're, Yasha and I are still working on our one-two combination. Here. Sometimes we like to talk over <laughs> the top of each other. We're like, wait, did you start? Oh, I, no. oh God. Ah. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this podcast. Uh, it was great having you. You're a lively guest. Oh, thank you. And we love your work. Oh, thank, thank you, for being here.
1: you. Thanks, guys.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, the podcast. We are always looking for great topic suggestions and suggestions for future guests. Email us at info at if you have suggestions on either. Thanks for spending some of your time today with us, and we hope you enjoy the rest of Season 1.